We live in a culture that is uh, very polarized, right, on a lot of issues. We're polarized in terms of race. We're polarized in cultural issues. We're polarized on, on financial, political concerns. Um, we really are increasing, at least finding common ground is increasingly difficult. But there is one thing that we do all agree on. There is, uh, there is really a fundamental truth to which all of us agree which is we do want to be happy. It doesn't matter if you're older or younger, whether male or female, rich or poor. It doesn't matter whether you're learned or not. We, we all want to be happy. I mean, we want to have a sense of satisfaction about our lives. Uh, we want to be pleased. I, I mean, if, if you wonder just how often do you think about these questions? How am I doing? How do I feel? How is my family going? How's my job going? It's just a lot about me. I want to be happy. In fact, Alexander Pope was an English poet in the 18th century, and he writes this piece of poetry. He says, Oh, happiness, our being's end and aim. God, pleasure, ease, con content, whatever thy name, that's something still which prompts the eternal sigh, for which we bear to live or dare to die, we want it. We want to be happy. And yet it just seems like we can't. We struggle with being satisfied, with being complete, with being happy. You know, the pop legend Madonna, right, a massive commercial success. She writes this. This is from Vanity Fair, an interview that she gave. She says, I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as another, as a special human being. And then I get onto another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Here she is at the pinnacle of success, as it would be determined by many in this world, and there is that constant, elusive, I want to be happy, and I can't. Well, the preacher knows this is our dilemma. And the preacher is giving us this wisdom here so as to lead us to a happy life. Now, this is the nature of wisdom literature. Wisdom is trying to take a people and give them, you know, we're living in a fallen, we're living in a foolish world, and how can we live? Now, I often joke and kind of make a parody on Joel Osteen's You Can Have Your Best Life Now, and I tell you, you can't have your best life now. Don't seek it. Your best life is to come, that's for sure. But I would say you could have a better life now. And the reason I use better is because you see it in the text. There's three fault lines in the text. It's better than, it's better than, it's better than. That's the nature of wisdom literature. It's saying there's a better way. There's a way of wisdom as a way of foolishness. Now, in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, it's always between the wise and the fool. Who do you want to be? Well, the one that walks on the path of wisdom is the one that finds happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction. The fool never finds those things. And so we're going to look at this text, and what we're going to do is, it's like a journey towards happiness. How can we walk towards some degree of happiness? 
And, and along this journey, there's going to be three forks in the road. And these three forks are these three ingredients that I would say this text is proving to us uh, to have, for example, to be content, to be involved in a community, and to seek the applause of God. That will lead you to happiness. And with each fork in the road, we'll get to them, uh, we have a path. You know, we can go left to foolishness or we can go right to wisdom. Wisdom will lead you to a sense of satisfaction and happiness. So, so the first fork in the road you see right here in verses 4 to 6. The first fork in the road is, are you going to continue striving and trying to acquire and trying to build a reputation for yourself? Or are you going to rest content in what God has given to you? That's the first question. So look with me at verse 4 and 5. He says, Then I saw that all the toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Now, you kind of see two parts of foolishness here. The first one that you heard about, he's the fool because he's striving for busyness. The other is a fool because he's striving towards laziness. They're both the fool, though. That's the, that's the path of foolishness. But, but let's look at the first one first. This one that is all toil and all skill comes from a, a man's envy of his neighbor. What he's speaking about is the person, the man or the woman, that constantly strives. And he's working harder and harder. And a lot of his motivation is coming from his neighbor. Uh, what they have, who they are, all that they've acquired. And that becomes the driving influence as to why I'm working so hard. It could be your neighbor, it could be a coworker, it could be a fellow student, it could be another athlete. It could be, it, it's, it's just keeping up with the Joneses. I want more, I want better, I want a better family, a better name. It can be religious envy. It can be, you know what, I see these other churches and they're all bigger, so I'm going to work harder and more diligent so that our church might grow like those other churches. I'm being driven by a goal, not necessarily a godly one, but, but I'm driven by a goal of my envy of other churches. Or it could be financial envy. You see other people, they have nicer cars. They have fancier homes, so you're going to work harder. You're going to work longer hours. You're going to compromise on truth just to get ahead. You're going to step on somebody just so that you can make more to have more. Or it may be social envy. It, it may be this idea of, I'm going to post more pictures about how glamorous my life is, the great food that I eat, or the great family gatherings I have. I, I, I want to show people that I'm happy as well. Uh, so you have all kinds of this, this striving that's motivating and driving us, and it's all coming from what we see around us. Now, you can always see the presence of envy in yourself, you know, when you seek to build a status or you build an identity based upon what you have or what you've become or who you are or how you're perceived, there's the presence of envy there. Or, for example, if you kind of have this little inner glee when somebody that you're competing with just drops down a few rungs on the ladder, or maybe you really get sad when someone begins to get accolades and compliments that you don't have. Now, I recognize that many of you are motivated for other reasons. Maybe you work hard just to keep your job. And maybe some of you work hard because you really like to do things well. But inside of all of us, there's that craving to not be outshone by others. Or there's a craving that we might outshine others. Our name would be a little bit higher. Our recognition over the things that we do would be a little bit better. That's what he's speaking about here. 
But not just striving at busyness, striving in, in laziness. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, he says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Well, what's this talking about? Well, he's saying that the fool, you don't have to just be driven in terms of acquiring things. Maybe you're driven to just take your life easy. The fool that folds his hands, he's folding his hands, he's not working with his hands. If you don't work with his hands, he's not going to make money. If he's not going to make money, he's not going to have food to eat. He's going to have to eat himself. He's going to consume himself. He's going to ruin himself. This is the nature of the fool. The fool doesn't listen to instruction. The fool repeats the same mistakes over and over. The fool wants everybody to adjust rather than him. Do you struggle with this kind of jealousy, competition of others? Is it over their body? Is it over their lifestyle? Do you struggle with wanting more in terms of name recognition? Do you struggle with, with things or possessions newer? To the degree that it drives you, it puts us on the road of foolishness. He does say there's, there's a better way. There's a better way. And the better way is found in verse 6. Look at it. It says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. So there's a better way. This handful of quietness or contentment. Remember, it's being held with the, the two hands full of striving after the wind. What he's saying is, don't be the fool who goes after life with two hands, grasping and, and trying to can get everything that he can. So you can imagine, for example, a little kid comes up to a, a dish of candy on Halloween. What kid goes in there and, and just wants one piece of candy? Or, or, or maybe he puts one handful in. No, what, what, what a child would tend to do is put both hands in. I, I want my hands full. Maybe even bring the forearms together to get as much as I can. Th this, is, this is the type of person that wants it all, excess, now, more, greater. You know, newer is better, bigger is better, more is better. And he says, no. He says, the better way is contentment. It's a handful of quietness. What is a handful of quietness? A handful of quietness is a person who recognizes the modesty of accomplishments and achievements. Uh, the person that has a handful of quietness, they understand that even if I set a record, it'll be broken. If I do some great accomplishment, it'll be, it'll be done over. If I fill the seat and do the job really well, there's going to be someone that comes along. They're okay with that. One author said it this way. He said, a handful of quietness is a rest, a calmness in soul. They know their place in the world. They're content with the boundary lines of their life. And they're able to enjoy the fruits of their labors with a cheerful heart. In other words, they are people, they are men and women who work, they steward their gifts for the glory of God and for the betterment of neighbor, and they're okay with what they have, who they are, and what they're acquiring. They've made peace with that. You know, this idea of contentment, you see in Scripture, right? So in, in Philippians chapter 4.13, you hear Paul say that, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, I call this the Superman verse. The Superman verse, uh, because you always hear athletes quoted or other people, they have some issue in front of them, and, and they always bust out, and maybe for good motive, I don't know, but they always bust out, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, I call it the Superman verse, because if I, if I need to be faster than a speeding bullet, if I need to be more powerful than a locomotive, or if I need to leap taller than the tallest building, uh, then I can do it all because Christ strengthens me. But do you realize what the verses are before this? 
He says, I have learned in whatever situation, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, the strengthening presence of Christ is to help us to walk in contentment, whether we go through a valley of trouble or whether we have a mountaintop of success. Our contentment is in him. It's not my identity isn't built on the things that I have acquired. So the question is, if the better way is a handful of quiet, how do we grab a handful of quiet? How do we do it? Well, let me say this. Number one, that you want to discern your ambitions. Why are you striving after things? Ambitions can be godly, they can be ungodly. But why are you striving? Why are you working the extra hours? Why are you putting in the extra work? What's pushing you? What's motivating you? Do you find that you're successful based upon what you do or some performance report that you get? Or how strong your family is or how big your bank account is? I mean, to what degree does your happy meter go up and down uh, based upon, or, or your security or your hope based upon what people perceive of you or how well you're doing at work. Do you realize that each one here, whether you know, you could be here as a Christian or not, you're made in the image of God. And the image of God has a weight to it that will crush any good thing that you try to lean on for hope or security or meaning and purpose. I mean, even the highest name or the best job or the highest increase you cannot build an identity. It doesn't bear the weight of an image bear. It'll crush you. It won't satisfy you. It'll leave you empty. You can hit the top of your profession. And if you think that is where meaning to strive for the highest rung on the ladder, and that's where you're going to hit it, not so. You know, many of you know Anthony Hopkins. He's a great actor. He's got a litany of, of great films that he's played in. Some are kind of bit morbid, but, but he's a great actor and well-recognized. Here's what he says. I meet a lot of young people, and they want to act, and they want to be famous. And I tell them, when you get to the top of the tree, there's nothing up there. There's nothing. He says, most of this is nonsense. Most of this is a lie. This is a warning for us. Don't take the foolish road. Discern your ambitions. Discern what drives you. And then let me say this to you. Pursuing this handful, of media, uh, this handful of quietness, it's not mediocrity. No, to have a handful of quietness, it is work and it's hard work, but it's hard work done for the glory of God. You're stewarding your gifts for God's purposes and not the envy of your neighbor, but the benefit of your neighbor. In other words, it's not two handfuls full of striving after the wind. It's emptying your hands for the good of others. I mean, Jeremy... Jeremiah Burroughs was an uh, English Puritan in the 17th century, and he says contentment comes not by addition but by subtraction. It's in giving yourself. I know this is paradoxical. I get that. But God is content in that he gave us a son. Christ was content to not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There is gain in the giving. And that's the path of wisdom. It's paradoxical to everything we're raised in. But that's the wisdom. That's why more people are traveling on the road of foolishness than on wisdom. So that's the first fork in the road. The first fork in the road is that if you want to be happy, 
if you want to have that sense of fulfillment and purpose, there has to be a contentedness with what God has given to you. And your joy will come in the giving, not in the gaining. That's massive. Okay, the second fork in the road is going to be not living as an individual, but living in community, embedding yourself in community. Again, we have the foolish way Explain to us first. Look with me in 7 and 8. He says, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other, either son or brother. And yet there is no end to all of this toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Now, this is a guy, a girl. They're working so hard. They're toiling so diligently. They don't have a son or a brother. In other words, they, they've outpaced relationships. They've committed themselves to the job. They've committed themselves to their hobby. They've lost relationships. They don't have time for relationships. They're toiling so hard. Now, they're building all kinds of stuff. They're acquiring a lot of stuff. They're getting great wealth. But they have no one to share it with. They have no one to enjoy it with. They have no one to pass it on to. They don't even know. They've spent their life pursuing their goals. And the relationships got in the way. They don't have time for it. It's like the guy who buys new golf clubs but never swings them. It's like the guy who buys a big house, but he has no friends with which to enjoy it. It's the guy who, who buys the expensive yacht and ties it up at the pier and never sails it. You know, they do say that about a boat. They say there's two great days of owning a boat. The day you buy it and the day you sell it. All the other days are just there paying for it when it's floating at the pier. <laughs> But the reality of it is that this man is wealthy and has abundance, and yet he's bankrupt in terms of relationships. He doesn't even have pleasure from it. When I was growing up, in, uh, there's a song by Harry Chapin called Cats in the Cradle. Maybe some of you have heard it. It was a great hit in the mid-'70s. Uh, but it's a story. It's a story about a man who was pursuing a career when his son was born. And, and the line is... Um, he says, um, my child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. And uh, it's kind of a folk song. As it goes on, it speaks about how work just dominated his life. He said, my son turned 10 the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, Dad. Come on, let's play. And can you teach me a throw? And he said, not today. i got a lot to do. The boy said, that's okay. And then the song continues to go on. And, of course, the father now becomes an old man. And he is an older man looking back on his life. And he's wanting to connect with his son. So he says, uh, I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, love to, Dad, but I, I can't find the time. You see, my new job's a house on the kids of the flu. Sure nice talking to you, Dad. Sure nice talking to you. He's wealthy. The fool here is wealthy. He has no relationships. He has no friends. He has no one to share life with. This is the epitome of the fool. He has everything, and he's got nothing. He's got nothing in terms of value. But there's a better way. He gives us the better way, and you see that in verse 9. The better way is two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. 
and has not another to lift him. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So what he's saying here is I don't think he's speaking about marriage per se, although it may have application to it. I think he's speaking about companionship, friendship, being embedded in a community of faith. Instead of going through the path of I'm going to do things my way, I'm, he's saying the path of wisdom that leads to happiness and satisfaction will be in harnessing myself with other people. And he talks about the rewards. Notice the first reward. You know, this idea of assistance in life, right? He says, if, if one falls, there's no one to pick him up. But if two fall, if two travel and one falls, the other can pick him up. This might be spiritual, this might be material, it might be financial. But you're helping one another live. You know, so, so I, was, I grew up on the river, and we'd go swimming all the time. Back in the day, we learned how to swim early in life. And they didn't have lifeguards all over the place. They did at the pools, but, but not really at the beaches and not along the river. And so we'd just go swimming in the river. And some of these rivers were a mile wide at points, and we'd be swimming or boating out there. And the only rule mom had for me, it was never, you know, you can't go because there's no lifeguard. She just says, take somebody with you. You, you always got to be swimming with a buddy. You always got to have one in case you get a cramp or in case something happens, you got somebody to help you. That's what he's saying here. Two are better than one because we can help each other in this life. We can provide assistance. We're all going to come to places needing it. And the second reward you see here is that they can keep each other warm. Now, of course, when I was a kid growing up, that meant all kinds of things to me. Not really what it means in the text, but you think in intimacy, husband and wife. I don't think it means that. I think it may be two travelers in the Middle East at night, kind of sleeping back to back just to let the body heat warm them up. This idea of two can provide warmth, they can provide comfort. That in this life, we're going to have trouble. We're going to hit trials and adversity. And to have someone come along and comfort me, bring me the warmth of a good word, encouraging me about the goodness of God, or reminding me about truths in Scripture. I may be losing my perspective over the trials and uncertainties of my life, and someone can come along and remind me, this is what we know about God. This is what we have to do. This is how we have to turn to God. So they can comfort one another. Another benefit of community, you see on the last one, it says that a man might prevail against one who is alone, but two can withstand him. Don't we need this? I mean, don't we need the protection and safety afforded? Don't we need other people to help watch our back and to help guard us? So, so we... The preacher is reminding us the foolish way is to try to go at it alone. The way of wisdom is to embed yourself with godly friendship and companionship in a community of faith. And when he talks about this threefold cord is not easily broken, I think that's true. Now, often you hear that in the context of marriage. It's a husband and the wife, and then it's either God, Spirit, or Jesus. Is the, you know what I think it means? I think it means three is better than two. And having four friends is probably better than three. It just means a multiplicity of friends. You know, you think, about, you think about Moses and Joshua. You think about David and Jonathan. You think about Paul and Timothy. I mean, even the Lone Ranger had a friend. Tonto. Tonto was his friend. You go Google it. It's there. He, he's his friend. He assists him. He helps him. He protects him. He doesn't get those cool little things that uh, the Lone Ranger wore. But we, we all need this. 
We need this. Why? Because we're on a journey and we need one another. You know, so back in the, um, Jonathan Edwards was a great preacher. He preached from uh, Hebrews 11. He preached a sermon called uh, The True Christian Life, uh, A Journey to Heaven. That was a sermon. Preached out of Romans 11. A True Christian Life, A Journey to Heaven. That's what we're on. We're on that. You may not feel like you're journeying because your house is staying still, but your days are passing. You're journeying. I mean, it's either to heaven or he would say to hell. But we all are making a journey through this life. And, and, and so he wrote this sermon. I read it to Carol, the, the back half of it, when we were getting ready to go to bed. I was reading her Edwards and these. Um, it, it's incredible. You can Google it. It's a great sermon. And he's saying that on this journey to heaven, our primary goal in the journey is we're seeking God's happiness. We want to be happy in God. We want God to be ultimately happy. Now in Psalm 16, he says that, you know, Psalmist David says, I have no good apart from you, God. It doesn't mean that the things we have aren't good. They are good, but they're good in God because God's given them to us. To try to make joy out of the things that God has given to us apart from God, you'll crush it. Remember? Your image-bearing capacity, it's too heavy. It cannot handle it. You need God for happiness. So in this sermon, he's talking about our journey to heaven. We're moving forward to find our happiness in God. But his last point of application is he says you can't travel alone. You've got to travel with people on this journey. We've got to go together. In fact, here's what he says. He says, there are many ways that Christians might greatly help and forward one another in their way to heaven. By religious conference, that is, speaking about the things of God. He says, persons greatly need, people greatly need help in this way, which, as I have observed, is a difficult way. Let Christians be exhorted to go this journey, as it were in company, conversing together while their journey shall end, assisting one another. Company is very desirable in a journey. Let Christians go united and not fall out by the way which would be the way to hinder one another. They ought to use all means to help each other up the hill. This is the way to be more successful in traveling and to have the more joyful meeting at the Father's house in glory. We need each other. I mean, Hebrews says that. Don't forsake the assembling together, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Colossians says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. We need one another. You're not going to make it alone. You can't make it alone. It's not designed that way. So, so two warnings for us here on the second fork in the road. Beware of the appeal of individualism. Beware of it. Listen, it promises freedom. You get to do what you want when you want. There's nothing being encumbered. You got plenty of money because you're not spending it on anybody or anything. You totally have free reign to do whatever you want. If someone bothers you, leave. If you don't like them, you're gone. You get to be with who you want when you want to be with it. There is an appeal to this, but let me remind you, it comes at a cost. You're going to age. You're going to get lonely. You're going to live a threatened life. There is an isolation to individualism that will catch up with you and will crush you because you've been built for community. So beware of the appeal of individualism. It, 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 it holds itself, I get to do what I want to do. But we just heard that there's more joy in giving, not just gaining. And then the second thing I'd ask you to be aware of, beware of false community. Beware of false community. You know, there's a lot of community out there that's masquerading 
You know, there's, there's community where I'm with people, but I'm not really transparent. I'm really not honest with them. I'm not really honest with the struggles I'm going through. I'm not opening up my life. I'm not investigating their life. And technology hasn't helped us here. You know, technology has helped connect people, but not really. You know, your Facebook friends, they aren't really friends. They should be Facebook connects. It's a fine way of communicating, but it's not community. You know, think about, as one author said, try raising your children by texting them or try to have a marriage through FaceTime. It won't happen. You know, there's a sort of ministry of presence that you have to be there. But that's where the rub is. And this is why people kind of shy away from Christian community, because we're brought together with people different than we are. And it takes, they bring their burdens. They bring their dumpster fires of life. And they bring up their tangled lives. It's just easier to back away, as long as your life isn't tangled. It's encumbering. But this is the nature of how God changes us to be like the son who came not to be served, but to serve. There is burden, there is cost, but in the cost, there is great gain as you seek to serve one another along the way on this journey to heaven. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a uh, German pastor, uh, died at the end of World War II. He kind of set up and participated in the underground church during the war he said this about fellowship. He says, if the fellowship of the cross, it is the fellowship of the cross to experience the burden of the other. If one does not experience it, the fellowship he belongs to is not Christian. If any member refuses to bear that burden, he denies the very law of Christ. So I'm asking, who knows you to ask you questions about your life, or, or to encourage you along the way. Who's encouraged you along the way in the last 30 days? Who have you encouraged along the way? Who have you assisted in life? Who have you helped? Or who have you asked for help from? Maybe you don't want to be, I don't want to be a burden on people. When people tell me that, I mean, you're supposed to. In Galatians 6.1, bear each other's burdens. Well, now you're not letting me do what Paul just told me to do. Who have you been assisting? Who have you been helping? Who have you been comforting? Do you know somebody in this church that has been hurting? Who have you come alongside and just encouraged them with the truth of God and his love for them? Or just wept with them if they're just in a bad place? God have mercy on us. I, I sometimes I don't know what to pray. God have mercy. That's all I ask. I don't know. I don't know what we need at this point. Just God help us. And that's fine prayer. So that's the second fork in the road. Wisdom is to embed yourself in a community. It will come with burdens and costs, but, but that's the way of wisdom. And then the third fork in the road is going to be, do you want to seek the approval of men and women, or do you want to seek the applause of heaven? Look at 13 to 16, because they're kind of confusing verses. He says, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. So that's the comparison. Who no longer knew who to take advice. For he, that is probably the young man, went from prison, so he had humbled, you know, from prison, think Joseph maybe, to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, so now he's king, but he's looking back on his humble beginnings. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth, 
who was to stand in the king's place. So, uh, so the preacher is looking back and he's saying, I'm looking at all the people and I even see that youth who now has become king. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. So this young king is leading a massive kingdom. And yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is vanity and a striving after the wind. I was trying to help understand that. Here's how the story goes. There's an older man who's king. And he has gotten old. He's probably gotten hard-hearted. He's not listening to advice. He's gotten probably a little crusty. He should have gotten out of the way of his successor before he did. So there's him. And then there's this young man. He's a young man, but he's a wise man. He's smart. He's intelligent. He's innovative. And he begins climbing the ranks, moving towards this replacing of the king. It's like a rags-to-riches story. He's known poverty, and now he's on the throne. He's known prison, and now he has the honor of people. I mean, it's literally the outhouse to the penthouse. That's the, it's a miraculous, spectacular rise in popularity. He has it all. He has this fleet of people who are willing to follow him. But notice what he says. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. They'll forget about him. All his popularity, all success is gone. It's gone like the wind. It's a grasping after the wind. He has no legacy. We have no legacy. There is no legacy you'll leave for generations and generations and generations. I mean, all he's got to do is look back in history. Think about Winston Churchill. He was known as the bulldog because he was so tenacious. You know, he had a kind of a checkered military and political career leading up to World War II. Uh, but in World War II, he was prime minister of, of England, if you're wondering who he is, Great Britain. He galvanized a nation. We still read his speeches. He was an incredible speaker. He galvanized this nation. And many people think that it was his kind of unifying force that rallied Britain to withstand the onslaught of Nazi Germany. And you know what? By the end of 45, within a year of the end of the war, they had him out of office. They voted the conservatives and him right out of office, gone. Not a year. The guy was credited with galvanizing a nation, and he didn't get 12 months. That's the fickleness of men and women. That's the foolish way. Well, what's the better way? Well, you know, we're not told explicitly. The better way, I think, is more implicit. It's seeking the approval of God. And the reason I say it's implicit is because the word God isn't even in our passage. There's no mention of God. He is mentioned before, he's the judge of all people, the wicked and the righteous, and he's mentioned next week in chapter 5, he's mentioned as the one to fear. In fact, chapter 5 says, you know what, you better be careful how you listen to him because there's a responsibility, and you better be careful how you talk to him. And that's why he says you ought to fear God. In other words, I think what is implicit here is the better way is don't fear man. Don't, don't worry about what men or women may think about you. They're too fickle. Your legacy won't last your own lifetime. Fear God. Fear God. Now, when I talk about fearing God, I'm not talking about being scared of God like a ghost. Uh, fear in Scripture is often faith. It's have faith in God. Now, if you really have faith in the God of the Bible, you will fear him. That will just be a natural response. So, so have faith in God. Now, what do we have faith in? Well, you want to have faith not just in the existence of God. Many, many non-Christians have faith in the existence of God. What he's speaking about here is we have faith in the existence of God, but we have faith in the existence that God is good and he is coming to deliver us. 
Remember now, we're not in Eden and we're not in the new heavens and the new earth. We are in the wilderness. We need to be delivered and God has promised us. Remember what put us in the wilderness? Remember the, the, the first couple? They rebel against God, they sin, they receive the curse and they're sent into the wilderness. That's the first promise that we, re, that we have, that God says, oh, one's going to come, he'll crush the head of the serpent, the serpent associated with sin which put us in the wilderness. God promises one will come and crush the head. He will deliver us back to himself. Our faith in God is to be both in his existence as a holy and a righteous and a good God, but as a loving, good Savior who has given us a son. This is how he saves. He gives one like us in every way to bear our sin, our shame, and our guilt so that God could be both just in punishing our sin, but the justifier of those with faith. So our faith is to be rooted in Christ, who is our substitute, as Jeremy was leading us in song, that he's our substitute, that we can be reconciled to God. This is what makes us Christian. Believing in God doesn't make you a Christian. It's believing in a God who is sovereign and a Savior who sends a son to bear our sins. This is what gives us happiness, because we're reconciled to the one who's made to us. How can you ever find happiness apart from the one who has designed you and made you and has given you life and sustains your life. So, so we see here that we want to fear God. Fear in God means faith in God. This is the way of wisdom. Now you see Jesus, of course, has walked this way, right? So you have Jesus Christ who's walked this way at every fork in the road, right? So when he came up to the fork in the road, is he going to strive for himself and his name, or is he going to be content in the work that God's provided for him to do? He was content. He had a handful of quietness. He knew the work that he was to do was going to be to lay down his life. He said in John 10, I am the good shepherd, I lay down my life. He was pleased to do with the Father. He was happy to do it. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus was contented with the work that the Father had given him, and he did it. And he did it to perfection, establishing a covenant that we could be reconciled. But then the next fork in the road is Jesus going to choose the, hey, it's me and my way, or am I going to embed myself in a community? Well, we see Jesus chose the path of wisdom. Now, his work on the cross was individual, but it produced a community. He called men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation to come to him. He produced a community. And then he sent us out. He didn't send them out one by one. Why didn't he send them out one by one? Two's better than one. He sends them out two by two. He's walking in the wisdom that is given to us in Ecclesiastes. But how about the third fork in the road? Does he choose to walk in the fear of man or does he walk seeking the applause of heaven? Well, he says that to do the will of the Father is my food. He wants to please God in every way. It says in John 17, he wants to bring glory to God. And you know what? God was pleased with him. You know, both at the transfiguration and the baptism, God speaks from heaven, says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Would you not love to hear that? I'm well pleased. He has sought my applause, not the applause of men. So we see Christ in every way walks out this wisdom. He's walked it out for us and as a substitute for us, but also to example us. So you and I are striving for happiness. 
You know how much you think about your own needs, your own pleasures, your own, how you're feeling, how you're hurting, all that. We want to be happy. That is fundamental to the way God's wired us. But a happiness that will bear the weight of an image bearer uh, can only be found in the wisdom given to us. The wisdom to find contentment in God, the wisdom to be embedded in a community, and the wisdom that comes from seeking his applause. So let's take a moment now and just ask for God to give you grace. I would literally, silently, ask God, give me grace to understand, to live in a way that might be one of wisdom leading to happiness. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.